Please find your way in your Bibles, if you could, to Romans chapter 12. As you turn there, I'll do a, a real quick recap for all of us, because we have been through a 11 chapters, 11 chapters of Romans, if you would go all the way back to April of last year, when we started going through Romans. Through 11 chapters, Paul has been detailing and going through deep, rich theological truths for us. He cares deeply about us as his readers to understand the gospel and understand the, the deep and rich theological truths of the gospel. We started out when we get into Romans chapter 1 through 3 with the fact that all people are sinful. Down to our very nature, we are depraved at our core. So while people know what is right, instead of doing what is right, they suppress the truth of God, and so they begin to worship other things and live how they desired rather than live how God had intended them to live. So also that the penalty for that sin is death. But the beautiful words are, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Paul begins to expound and open up these ideas of justification by faith and union with Christ. Begins to talk about all of these beautiful things of the gospel. And he says this, this gospel salvation, when we come to Romans chapter 9, is not effective for everyone, but God has chosen for himself. He's called out for himself a people. He has brought to himself a people that are both Jew and Gentile. Created for himself a people united to him, saved by the gospel. And Paul ends chapter 11 in the most beautiful words we could imagine, where he says that we give God this praise for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So he, he wraps up these beautiful thoughts and we come to chapter 12 and there's this transition that happens in chapter 12 where Paul is going to start to move from unpacking these, these deep, rich theological things and saying, okay, now based on all of this stuff, here's then how you live. And that's what we'll see in Romans 12. Let's read that together. It says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. It's like if you can remember your, your time in school, especially if you go back to probably elementary school, even getting into high school algebra type time, 
And we learn all of these different things. We learn history. We learn science. And then we learn math, and everybody is thinking, when am I ever going to use this? When do I ever need to know fractions? When do I ever need to know how to calculate square footage? And then you become an adult, and you are going to buy dirt for your garden, and you realize very quickly, oh, you need to know how to calculate square footage if you want to buy some dirt, because you need to know how much to buy. You go to cut a board, and you realize, oh, I need to know fractions. And all of these things that we learned in the past are now very applicable for us. We have our minds full of these rich, deep theological things through Romans 1 through 11. Sometimes even through there, if we're being honest, we're probably thinking, why does this matter? Does this matter? Where is this going to ever fit in for me? Romans 12 through 16, the remainder of the book, we'll talk about how all of those things fit for us. Why, does, why do these things matter for us now? Because we're, we're full of all these beautiful things, and we're grateful for those things, right? We're grateful to have learned about the doctrines of grace. We're grateful to have learned about justification. We're grateful to have learned about union with Christ. Wonderful things. So Paul comes along in Romans 12 and says, okay, here's now how you live. Thankfully for us, God doesn't just say, here's a bunch of information, go figure it out. Rather, we have a mentor, Paul. Paul will mentor us through these chapters, and it will be beneficial for us, and it will be good for us. We see this transition in verse 1. You actually just see it through some of the first words being used. I appeal to you, therefore. The word therefore is really pointing back to all that we've seen so far, all of the things that he's unpacked for us. He says, on the basis of these things, that's his appeal. His appeal is on all of this rich truth from the first 11 chapters of the book. I appeal to you, therefore, on the basis of all of these things, namely justification by faith alone, through grace alone, or by, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. That, that is the, the core of the gospel there. He says, on the basis of that justification... Here's then how to live. And I think if we were to seek to summarize the, the beginning stages of Romans chapter 12 here, rather than try to figure it all out and give you a theme or a summary at the end, big theme up front, the gospel of salvation empowers us to live as we were designed rather than live like the world. The gospel of salvation empowers us to live as we were designed rather than live like the world. We're going to dive into what that looks like in verses 3 through 8, but I, I want us to take some time specifically to look in verses 1 and 2 of this idea of worship. Because he says, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. True worship is what it means to live as we were designed. Because we were ultimately created as beings designed to worship God. That is what we were originally intended for. We were originally intended to worship God. That word translated spiritual, that, that spiritual worship, it actually means rational. Rational, and, and it's in the sense that it is the appropriate and the rational response to those who have received the mercies of God to now worship that God. 
It is logical, it is rational, it is appropriate that that is our response to having received the mercies of God. It's in stark contrast, if we went back to Romans 1, and we won't take the time to dissect Romans 1 again, but if we went back to it, you can recall that people know God. They have an awareness of God. They have the truth of God, and yet what do they do? They suppress the truth of God in order to believe a lie. They, they do not desire to worship God, and so it says that they worship the creature rather than the creator. To be exposed to who God is, to know who God is, and yet not worship him is completely illogical. It makes no sense. It goes against our very design because we, again, were created to worship God. I do a lot of projects around my house. Some of you probably do as well. And over the years, you collect different tools in order to do these projects. I have screwdrivers, I have hammers, I have drills, wrenches, sockets, tons of different stuff. If Elizabeth was coming along and said, I would like, to, I would like you to hang some pictures in the bedroom, she actually is looking at me like, yes, I actually do want you to hang some pictures in the bedroom. I'm, I'm getting there. I'll get around to it. It's on the list. If she, were, if she were to do that, I would go and grab some screws and I would grab some anchors and I would grab the things that I needed, but I probably wouldn't reach for a wrench. Why? Because the wrench isn't designed to put screws into a wall to hang a picture. It's, it's not meant for that. So it's completely illogical to grab a wrench or to grab a socket set when really what I need is a screwdriver. It's a silly example, but I think it highlights the point. We were designed for a distinct purpose. And that purpose is to worship God. So it is completely irrational for us to not do that. Especially those, especially us, who have been given the mercies of God. To have been gifted everything we've read about and learned about in Romans 1 through 11. And to say, no, I'm not going to worship God. It doesn't make sense. Paul gives us a description of what true worship looks like when he says you are to present your bodies as a sacrifice. He gives us three descriptions. He says it needs to be a living sacrifice. That is that it is something that is continual. When you think of sacrifice, if you went back to the Old Testament, you, you looked at some of the imagery in the Old Testament of sacrifice, it's typically what an, an animal being killed. So it, it seems completely different to think of a living sacrifice. But what, what Paul's saying is that this living sacrifice is something that is, it is continual. We, we don't die when we sacrifice for God. In fact, we, we live and we continue in our worship and our sacrifice to God. Not only is that sacrifice living, it is also holy, which is to say it is set apart. We're going to deal with this because there, there's a moral component to this. That we are, we are set apart. There's a holiness that we are now to, to live in. That we, we couldn't live in before because we were fully depraved. We had no ability to be holy. But now, covered by the blood of Christ, bought by the blood of Christ, we now can live holy. The third description he gives is that it is acceptable or that it is pleasing to God. Now, if we don't think about this properly, we, we run the risk of really falling into some dangerous places. 
Because we've already learned so far that that in our flesh we are depraved. There's no goodness in us apart from what God gives us through common grace prior to Christ. We are depraved people. Even Isaiah says that our, our righteous deeds, the good things we do, are just filthy rags to God. The danger we run into, though, is to take this idea of depravity, what we once were, and assume it still applies to us today. And what I mean by that is that we, we operate as though we're still depraved. We say, you know, there's no sense in pursuing holiness because God just looks at any good thing I do as rags anyway. But the reality is, and what I want us to understand is that because of our justification, God doesn't look on us in wrath anymore. He never looks at us anymore and says, all I see is filthy rags. He sees the blood of Christ because we've been justified. And so it's a a dangerous perspective and it's a damaging perspective because as a Christian, when we, we still feel like we're depraved, we still operate like we're depraved, we act like we can do nothing to make God happy. And the truth is, that God is happy with us when we live holy. When we resist temptations to sin, that pleases God. It does. He is happy about that. He is pleased when we see our, when we see our sin in our lives and we actually work to kill it. God is pleased with that. When, when we recognize sin and we go to someone within our GCC and we say, hey, I see this sin in my life, will you hold me accountable to not do that sin anymore? And we fight against those temptations to sin. God is pleased with those things. It is, it is incredibly defeating to our sanctification. That is, that is our, our growth in Christ, our growth in our Christian faith. It is incredibly defeating to think nothing I do matters to God. Because how we live absolutely matters to God. And he is pleased when we live well, when we seek holiness. Another danger that we can easily fall into is that we think by being holy, we're we're paying God back for something. We we treat God like he's a bank. If you go to the bank and you buy a car or you buy a house, they lend you money and then you have to pay them back on a monthly basis, and it hurts every time you pay them. We, we treat God like that. Like God, God has lent us this beautiful thing of justification, this beautiful thing of salvation, and now I have to work my way to pay him back. God is not a bank. He, he doesn't demand some repayment. The gospel isn't some loan that we have to pay off. Instead, Holy living, right living is done not out of some obligation, but out of a desire to love and show gratitude and thankfulness to a God who saved us. John Piper uses an illustration of a husband giving his wife flowers. And he says, if if I came home and I had flowers there on the kitchen counter and my wife came home and in surprise, said, wow, these are beautiful. What are these for? And the husband's response to his wife was, I felt like I had to. I felt obligated. It's, it's what I'm supposed to do, so I just did it. 
And besides, like, you know, you've made some really nice meals the last couple of weeks. I thought I should, like, pay you back for what you've done so we're even now. Like, that is, that is not the picture of holy living. That is not the picture of Christ and our relationship to him. If, if any husbands are in here and that's how you're behaving, please stop. Don't do that. Your wife is not going to be happy with that if you're like, how about your flowers because I felt like I had to. Yeah. Thanks for the tacos last night. Here's some roses. Like that, that's not the way to operate, so please don't do that. But, but oftentimes, that's how we think of holiness. We think of, I have to live this way because I'm just supposed to, and, and God expects me to, so I, I should do it. If we live like we're paying back a debt to God, ultimately I would say we will be miserable in our Christian lives. We will be absolutely miserable. And I would venture to say it won't last. If, if the sole motivation we have for living holy and living rightly is an obligation to God rather than out of thankfulness and gratitude, we will stop living holy. We will grow discouraged. It will happen. To, to seek to live holy simply out of an obligation or even out of a fear of God is never going to last for us. God is pleased with us when it's in, in thankfulness and within gratitude and in love that we seek to live right, that we seek to live holy. Instead of being conformed <clears throat> to the world, I just skip something. Sorry, I think I just lost my place. Sorry, sorry. Here we go. Yep, I'm back. It's the danger of hitting a screen with your finger and not realizing it. When we come to verse 2, Paul gives us two commands. Gives us two commands, and the first one he says, do not be conformed to this world. And we have to remember, based on the mercies of God, that we are, we are now to live as we were designed, live as worshipers of God. So in this first command to, to not conform to the world would be to, to live and act like people who were not living as they were designed. Because the, the world is designed not to live as God would want us to live. And so Paul's saying, you were designed for something different. You were designed for something good. I have, I've saved you so that you can be living that way. And so do not conform to this world that doesn't want us to live that way. Conformity to the world is the exact opposite of presenting our bodies as a living, holy, and pleasing sacrifice. It's, it's an active command here. Paul is saying this is something you actively should be seeking to do, actively looking to do. Because Paul doesn't want to look at the church. God doesn't want to look at the church. He doesn't want to look at Eternal City and say, you look no different than the world does. He wants to be able to look at his bride, look at his church and say, you are holy. You are set apart. You do not conform to the world. And we're going to come back to this in a moment and see 
what exactly is Paul talking about when he says don't conform to this world? And we're going to see that in verses 3 through 8 in, in just a moment. Instead of conforming to the world, the second command in verse 2 he gives is that we are to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. The grammar that Paul uses here is actually giving this idea of this continual thing happening to us. That, that it's not something that just instantaneously happens. We become justified and our minds are automatically changed. But rather there's this continual process of renewal that takes place every single day. The mind for Paul, as he's writing this, is actually something of a, of a moral conscience. He's saying the renewing of our minds is that over and over, day by day, we learn more and more of what it means to live as God wants us to live. We, we every day learn more and more of what it means to live as God designed us to live. And again, this is, contrast this with Romans 1. Romans 1 verse 28 talks about God giving people over to a debased mind. God giving people over to a debased mind, and instead of a, a debased mind that lives according to the world, Paul says in Romans 12, God has transformed our minds, and he is renewing our minds, so that rather than suppressing the truth of God, we now embrace the truth of God in order that we might understand and know what is the will of God which in context here is really God's moral direction for us. That, that is to understand the will of God. How does God want us to live? It's like the thing of a little kid, maybe toddler age, who is busy climbing on a lot of things. And you tell them, you know, don't climb on that table because you could fall off and you couldn't get hurt. The smart kids don't climb on the table at all. They're like, okay, <laughs> I'm not even going to bother. They miss the high, the like, experience of climbing on the table to see what it's like up there. But they also don't have the big bruise on their face from falling off. You have the kid who tries it once, falls off. It's like, all right, table's bad, never going to the table again. Then the special kids are the ones that just keep climbing up there. They're the ones that they just keep climbing, they keep falling. And eventually, we hope, they'll get it at some point. Like, maybe one day they'll pick it up. And as the kid gets older, they eventually learn. In the same sense, this is, this is us. God, God instructs us. He tells us. His word is full of it. Here's how to live. Don't climb on the table. Sometimes we climb up there. Sometimes we fall down. And sometimes, maybe oftentimes, we climb up there multiple times and we fall down multiple times because we, we don't live as God would want us to live. And so we have the bumps and the bruises to show that we aren't living this way, but through the continual renewal of God's process of sanctification in our lives, we will one day learn to live rightly. And it takes time. And as we'll see shortly, it takes more than just ourselves. It takes a community of people caring for one another for us to really grow in our love, really grow in our holiness, and really grow to live as God has designed us to live. So, all that was introduction. Um, and I'm 20 minutes in. So, I'm two verses in. I got verses three through eight to go, but... I think we'll be okay. Um, we will make it through. 
In case you've forgotten, uh, the main takeaway for us this evening is the gospel of salvation empowers us to live as we were designed rather than live like the world. And the natural question for us then is, how do we do that? What does that look like? What does it mean to not conform to the world? What does it mean to live rightly? And so for the remainder of our time, I'd like us to look at three characteristics of living out this true worship of God. Three characteristics of of what it means to live as we were designed rather than live like the world. And I'll give them to us up front. To live as we were designed is to think properly of ourselves. We see that in verse 3. To live as we were designed is to pursue unity in the church. We'll see that in verses 4 and 5. And the third one is to use our gifts in service to the church. And we'll see that in verses 6 through 8. Let's look at that first characteristic. To live... To live as we are designed is to think properly of ourselves. Notice what Paul says in verse 3 again. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Notice first and foremost that, that Paul's saying, this is for everyone. We have seen numerous passages so far throughout the first half really the first 11 chapters of Romans, where it's been focused on Jews only, Gentiles only. Here he's saying everyone. This is, this is applicable to all of you. He says, for everyone, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. And we, we can realize quickly, this is completely different than the way the world lives, the way the world operates. We're going to get to that. Let's continue on. He says, instead of thinking of yourself too highly, we would expect Paul then to say, but think of yourself lowly. But he doesn't say that, does he? He says, rather than think of yourself too highly, think of yourself rightly. Think of yourself properly. He uses this idea of sober judgment. And we read the word sober and our minds probably go to most likely, jump to the opposite of sober, which is drunk. You can probably picture the scene, maybe you've even experienced the scene for all I know, but you can probably picture the scene possibly in a movie, TV show, a video you've seen, average normal guy, had a little too much to drink, thinks he became Thor in the last three hours, grew six inches, added 25 pounds of muscle, and he can take on the world. So he starts running his mouth, and what happens? Usually he gets put in his place. Because average guy is not connected with reality. He's, he's had too much to drink. He's no longer sober, and so he thinks he's something that he's not. He's no longer in touch with reality. He does not have an accurate view of himself. What Paul wants us to see here is not to think too highly of yourself, but to think accurately of yourself to think accurately of yourself. Not to think too high, not to think too low, but to think just right. And it's it's so important to live this way, and we're going to get to this as we get into some of the things related to spiritual gifts. It's so important to think this way because if we don't live, if we don't think rightly and properly about ourselves, that will impact and affect so many things within the community of the church. 
it will be it will it will be a negative thing to unity in our church if we don't think rightly of ourselves. And we'll get to what that means in a moment. I don't see them in here, but um, Cheyenne and JJ were part of a play this past weekend, and that play had a lot of different fairy tale characters in it. The storyline traced like different fairy tale characters, and one of those fairy tale characters. So I was watching. I was thinking this was. Goldilocks and the Three Bears. You remember this, the kid's story, Goldilocks and the Three Bears? Normal bear family, living life, dad, mom, baby, trying to get by, dad's working a lot, mom's taking care of the baby. Deranged girl comes in, steals their food, breaks their stuff, sleeps in their bed. That's pretty much the story. In real, you think about it, you're like, this lady should have been locked up. I mean, she's breaking into bears' homes, stealing their stuff, destroying their property. Probably should have been locked up at some point in time. But when you think of that story, what, what's the one common thing that she comes across in every situation? Something's too hot. Something's too cold. Something's just right. Something's too hard. Something's too soft. But this one's just right. And it's the, the same idea don't think too high of yourself. Don't think too low of yourself. Think just right of yourself. Think accurately of yourself. And it's a silly example, but it's, it's very different from the way the world thinks. Because self-centeredness runs rampant in our culture. So many people think so much better of themselves than they should. They grow prideful and they grow arrogant. And so we, we see egocentrism throughout our world. It's all about me. It's all about how great I am. And if you want to try to test that, when's the last time you saw a politician, an athlete, a celebrity, any type of famous person say, you know what, I've been a little too prideful lately and I need to scale that back. It doesn't happen. It does not happen. But on the, on the opposite end of that, we see, we see people who think too lowly of themselves. The opposite of pride is not self-flagellation. It's not excessive criticism of ourselves. That, that's not the opposite of arrogance. That's not the opposite of pride. The answer to our pride, the answer to our low self-esteem, really what Paul says to us is the gospel. It's the gospel that roots us in proper thinking. Look what he says there. He says, we are to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Measure of faith is not saying, well, some have more faith than others. It's this idea of a, a basic general faith that God has given to all people. So based on the faith that God has given us, we are then to understand what that is, understand the gospel that's been given to us, and now use that to shape the way we think about ourselves. So the measure against which we think of ourselves and how we stay balanced of not being too high, not being too low, is to center ourselves on the gospel. And really, the, the gospel prevents us from thinking on these two extremes. It prevents us from thinking too highly of ourselves because we are sinners, we are sinful people who the only reason we can claim anything that God has given us is because of his grace and because of his mercy, not because of anything we've done. The gospel, though, also prevents us from thinking too lowly of ourselves because we are saved sinners. 
We are redeemed. There, there is a value and a love that God has for us that he, he doesn't have for those who don't trust the gospel. So the gospel roots us in not being too high, not being too low, not thinking too much of ourselves, but also not thinking too low of ourselves, thinking rightly of ourselves. That, that's what Paul's calling us to. He says, think accurately of who you are. You are a blood-bought saint of God, and that is a beautiful thing. But never let that puff you up. Never let that take you to think, there's something great about me that God really liked. That's why he did it. Nope. It's not how we're supposed to think. That's too high. But we also shouldn't say, I'm worthless. I'm terrible. God hates me. Because God doesn't hate us. God loves us. He places value in us. The value is based on Jesus Christ. It's based on the gospel. But that roots us in how we think. So how do we not live like the world? How do we not conform to the world? The first characteristic of that is to think properly of ourselves. Second characteristic of that, to live as we were designed is to pursue unity in the church. Verses four and five. I I, I mentioned this, that we we live out this worshiping community. Yes, all of life is worship. We, We understand that. Every aspect of worship. Worship is not limited to what we do here and now for a couple of hours on a Sunday evening. Worship is all of our lives. Worship happens when we are alone. Worship happens in our individual lives. But true worship cannot happen in isolation. True worship, living as we were designed, happens in a unified community of Christians who are living their lives together. When we think of even, and and this is even rooted in creation, when we think of Genesis, Adam was alone. And God says, it is not good that Adam should be alone. And so what did he do? He created for him a wife. In our Christian lives, it is not good for us to be alone. We weren't designed to navigate the challenges of this Christian life and navigate through all these things by ourselves. We were designed to live in community. And in that community to seek and pursue unity. In this church, in the church broadly, and we see it in our church here in Wilkinsburg, there, is, there are different people from diverse backgrounds, diverse cultures, diverse ethnicities, and we are all united in one body, the church. And we can celebrate our diversity because we have unity in the gospel. It, it is so different from the way the world wants to operate. The way the world and the culture looks at things is everything should be fragmented. Everything should be separated. Segment all of it. There's no unity in the world. But in the church, that's where we find unity, with our diversity. Uh, Thabidiani Wile is a pastor in Washington, D.C., and he uses this illustration. I think it's very helpful. Um, Probably the best I've heard on this idea. If you're familiar, and I apologize for a sports analogy for those who hate sports. NFL Pro Bowl, if you've ever watched it, there are two separate teams, the NFC and the AFC. All of them wear, for their team, the same color jersey. There's one set of jerseys that's usually blue, another set of jerseys that's usually red. There's some white mixed in. 
They're very, very distinct in who's on each side. The one difference between the team members is that they all wear different helmets. You have helmets for Eagles players. You have helmets for Ravens players. You have helmets for Browns players. Probably not any Steelers players. Sorry, I'm not from Pittsburgh. There's probably some Steelers players in there. I don't know. I haven't watched the Pro Bowl in like 10 years. So what do I know? <laughs> every sermon, I have to get a dig at the Steelers. Want every single one. It's just, it's part of the pattern anymore. But, but in this, now that I've thoroughly distracted everyone, everyone hates me. In this, though, if you watch the game, they're going half speed. Nobody's trying. Nobody's working. They're not blocking real hard. They're not tackling real hard. Why? Because they don't really care. They're not really putting effort into this game because the team they actually care about, the one that pays their salaries, the ones that they really play for, are their helmets, are shown on their helmets. And, and Thabiti takes this into this idea of diversity in the church, where, where all of us have the same jerseys on. That's our unity. But sometimes we care too much about how different we are, the helmets we wear. And sometimes we're, we're so focused on the helmets we wear and what, what makes us different that we actually miss what unites us. We actually miss what brings us together. The things that make us different, our diversity is a beautiful thing. I, I, don't, I don't think we should ever diminish the diversity. I love the fact that we are a diverse church. I love the fact that we, we have people sitting here from all different types of backgrounds, all different types of classes, colors. We, we have one of, our, one of our core commitments is the unification of people. That is a beautiful thing. I love that about our church. But if we stay too focused on what makes us different, we will not be unified. And when we become unified, that's when we can fully appreciate the diversity that we actually have. When we unite ourselves in Christ, that's when we can look around and say, the diversity we have is beautiful. The world does not have that. You want to live as you're designed? Live in unity and appreciate and love the diversity that we have. The world says there can be no unity. Everything needs to be segmented. Draw all the political lines you want. Find the narrow, small little echo chambers that you can find that just affirm everything that you like. And you don't ever have to agree with anyone. You don't ever have to be unified with anyone. That's, that's the world's philosophy of our time. And Paul says, don't conform to that. He says, be unified. And in your unity, there you will find diversity. Because he uses this imagery of the body. We are all different members of the body. Some of us have different functions. Some of us do different things. Some of us bring different experiences, different backgrounds, but we are all one body and we cannot live as one unified body if we're all just constantly trying to tear apart that body, and, and highlight how we're different. We can't do it. Instead, we, we think properly of ourselves. We consider ourselves and we, we think properly of that, and in thinking properly of that, we pursue unification with one another. We see Paul's natural progression here 
And we come to the third characteristic and the final characteristic. We are to live as we're designed by properly thinking of ourselves. We are to live as we're designed by pursuing unity among ourselves. And we are to live as we're designed as we use our gifts in service to the church. He takes a step beyond these, these cultural differences we have, and he says there are differences in even how we're gifted. The, the experiences you have, the, the things that you know are different than the things that I know. The gifts you have are different than the gifts that I have. And each of us, with our desert, diverse gifts, are to use those gifts in service to the church. Paul says that the basis of our gift, of our gifting is the grace of God. He says, having gifts that differ, verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So the very gifts that we have in service to the church are given to us as a, as a gracious gift from God. That's how all this ties together. When, when we think properly of ourselves and we pursue unity with one another, we can then use the diversity that God has given us, especially in our gifts, to serve one another. It's very hard to not have unity when we're serving each other. It's very easy to lack unity when no one serves anyone. Very easy. If we do not think properly of our giftings, if we do not think properly of our things, we can run into what Paul tells us not to. We can begin to think too highly of ourselves. You, you think look at all these gifts God has given me. I am such an asset for the church. And we begin to think too much of what our gifts are, not remembering that the only reason you have that gift is because God has graciously given it to you. The opposite side of that coin is that we become too critical of the gifts that God has given us. We begin to, to think that the gifts God has given us are, are not good enough to serve the church. They're not good enough to serve the church. And so on the one hand, you have people being alienated from each other because of pride. And the other, you have people being disjointed and alienated from each other because no one gets to see and experience the blessing of seeing you serve. Because you, you act like what God has gifted you isn't good enough to serve others. When in reality, the gift that God has given us is beautiful, is lovely. We should never diminish the gifts God has given us because God has given us that distinctly for service in his church. And his church is a beautiful thing. Having these different gifts that God has graciously, graciously given us lets us use them for the unity, the beauty, and the glory of the church. So we shouldn't think too highly of them lest we become arrogant and we shouldn't think too lowly of them, lest we deprive the rest of us from being blessed by our service. A few practical things and then we will wrap up. Service in the church does not always mean something public. I think that's important for us to understand. Service in the church does not always mean something public. One of the best ways you can serve at ECC is by encouraging people. I look around the room at people over the last 12 to 18 months who have been through hell and back, who have been through so much in their lives, who are discouraged, who are depressed, who are lonely, 
One of the best ways you can serve the people of Eternal City Church, the members that you've covenanted with, is to encourage them. Pray for them. And then when you pray for them, send them a text message, give them a call, tell them on a Sunday or at a GCC gathering, hey, I've been praying for you. I want to encourage you that God loves you. How important is that? And, and no one will know. No, no one will stand up one day and say, you know, this is, these are all the times that Diane has encouraged me, but yet she does every single time I see her. It's a beautiful thing. That is, that is one simple way that we can, we can encourage others, we can serve others by encouraging them. Second practical thing, do not belittle the gifts that God has given you. It's so easy to do because we, we never want to be arrogant. We never want to be boastful. But Paul's telling us to think honestly of ourselves. If you have gifts to teach, express that. Tell us that so that you can serve the church in teaching. If you have gifts of administration, there are tons of ministries in this church that need people to coordinate them and administrate them and do so in an organized and a good fashion. Avoid thinking you're not good enough or you're not talented enough to serve the church because the gifts God has given you are specifically in service to the church that God has put you in. Third practical thing, discern the gifts that God has given you. Examine yourself using this proper thinking, using this right thinking to discover what you enjoy. What, what ministry are you passionate about? What attracts you about a certain type of ministry? What, what is attractive to you? You could even ask the question, does the church have a need? Does the church have something that it needs that I can step in and, and fill in and help? Discern the gifts that God has given you. God is calling us to live as we, de- as we were designed to live. He says, don't live according to the world. Don't conform to the world. But rather, through the renewal of your mind, think properly of yourself, pursue unity in the church, and use your gifts to serve his church. Psalm 133 says, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live in unity. I hope our prayer collectively, and I trust that as we go from this and seek to live this out, as we get into a lot of the practical things of Romans, that when people see Eternal City Church, they would say how good and pleasant it is that at ECC, God's people in all of their diversity are living in unity. I hope that's our prayer. I hope that's what we will strive for. And prayerfully, through the grace of God, we will see that happen more and more and more as our minds are renewed every day. God gives us an ordinance that highlights that unity. And and every week we celebrate communion at Eternal City. It's It's a celebration of the sacrifice that Jesus has made on our behalf. Bible says that he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross so that by his death we might live. That's the foundation of our unity. Without Jesus' sacrifice for us, we would be broken. We would be as broken and fragmented as this world. But instead, as one church, united together, we get to celebrate this sacrifice. I would encourage you, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, please participate. Join with us. We would love nothing more than that. If you would say, I cannot claim Christ. I cannot claim Christ as my Savior. I do not know him. I do not believe in him. 
I would encourage you not to participate. Not because we want to punish you, not because we want to judge you, but simply because we, we don't want you to do something that you don't truly believe. We don't want you to identify with something that you don't truly believe. And if that is you, I would be thrilled to talk with you afterwards. I would be thrilled to talk with you about Christ afterwards. Uh, the music team is going to come out. We're going to sing a song, and then we will take communion together as one church. To finish our time together, I want to read 2 Corinthians 13, 11. It says, finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Amen. As a reminder, we are having our family dinner shortly after this. So we'll be breaking down the room, rearranging everything. Um, Please stick around. I'd invite you to stick around. Enjoy some time together, enjoy some good food, and thank you. Love you.